What is a refugee? A refugee is someone who has to leave their home for fear of persecution, that they will be hurt because of how they look, what they believe in, where they are from, what social group they are a part of, or their opinion on the government. I came from Burma. It's now called Myanmar. I was born in Southern Sudan. I came from Iraq. Liberia, West Africa. I have to run with my family when I was three because we are from the ethnic background, a Korean, and being prosecuted by our identity. I've been plunged into absolute despair at the monstrous things that human beings can do to human beings. Like the story of the father who was kicked and beaten by a corrupt official for over an hour in front of his wife and children as they tried to leave Syria. Or the family who walked for 15 days to get to the Jordanian border, their shoes dissolving on their feet without them even noticing. We came to England through the tunnel last night That's right, that's right We claim asylum, now they're treating us right So right The whole world has changed and the church is asleep This is Mission Shift, a podcast that shares ideas about reaching out to the immigrant cultures in America today When most people think of missions, they immediately think of somewhere overseas. Yet missions today could mean the neighbor next door. Our conversation today is with Roland Wells, a historian, pastor, and communicator who has spent most of his life teaching people how the gospel can impact all people and cultures. Thanks for joining us today. Roland, 90% of the time we get on the air like this and we start talking about immigration and we talk about the immigrants that are all around our churches and how do we reach them. Why are we getting so many immigrants into America? What's causing all of this migration that so often we don't understand as Americans and we certainly don't understand how to reach them for the gospel. But why? Let's just talk about the big why are we getting so much immigration traffic? Well, the why comes down to millions and millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of individual stories. Now, when you look at refugees and you look at the very poor trying to escape and have a better life, that's certainly a big part of what we're seeing when we see these people escaping war and or poverty of sub-Saharan Africa coming across the Mediterranean, being willing to, to drown in order to try to get into Europe. But when we see these people from Iraq and Syria coming across, as we did last year, coming into Europe, these are people who are desperate. We see the Karin who were terribly persecuted by the Burmese. And we see the Thai people closing down their refugee camps. And, or we see the, the Somalis stuck in refugee camps, hundreds of thousands of Somalis stuck in refugee camps in Kenya. These people are all desperate, and there are just sheer numbers of these folks. So we in the United States have had a history of refugee resettlement starting after World War II. People who were pushed out of Europe, you know, when the Russians came through at the end of World War II, and then they pushed the Polish border 150 miles west, and then they pushed the, the German border 150 miles west. The Prussia ceased to exist. Danzig became Gdansk. And uh, the whole world changed, and millions of people 
had no home. You know, Hungarians and and Poles and and Germans were resettled in the United States by the the thousands. And of course, long before that, the uh, Germans in the 19th century came over here. A lot of them because they didn't want their sons to be uh, to be cannon fodder. Unending German, you know, wars of that time. The Irish came. I was just in Ireland here a few weeks ago. Tried to find where my relatives came from in Galloway. It was a fine thing. And discovered that, uh, you know, learned a little bit more about that little tiny shortage of potatoes they had that made two and a half million people leave. About half of them died and the rest came mostly to the United States and Canada. So there have always been movements of people. And back thousands of years there have been movements. So we've talked about that in the past. Now, having said that, the refugees and those who come here, the poorest of the poor from, say, Latin America, most of those people, the refugees, are a fruit of push. They are there because they are being pushed out of these places. They have been pushed out by circumstances that they must escape or die. Now, there's also a pull. You know, there isn't a direct pull for refugees, although they're ending up in our job market, and very few of them remain on any kind of government support after, after one year. But f- as far as the undocumented who come across the border, they're coming because they want jobs. They want to make a little nest egg and most expect that they're going to go home again with their nest egg and buy some land and their family will prosper. Some may be leaving the option open or maybe come up here and have some kids and the kids will become uh, citizens and Interestingly, after 2008, when the economy crashed, millions of Mexicans went back. And, uh, and, but now the young people plan, when they get older and get married, they plan to come back up to the United States, reclaim their citizenship, and bring their parents up. That's a, another whole process. But again, we are short of labor. We're short of cheap labor. And many industries absolutely have to have that help. People that are in Oh, landscaping and restaurants, uh, roofing, a lot of construction, just an awful lot of jobs that are difficult jobs, hot, dirty, marginal pay. And jobs, uh, to be quite frank, that Americans do not want to have. Right. And our birth rate has dropped down. You know, now we're right around two children per couple. And uh, our abortion rate, you know, we've for the last, well, since 73, we've aborted about a third of our children. I want to go back to the refugee camps because you're saying that these people are being pushed out because either they're being pushed out or they'll die. So refugee camps in general are places are perhaps that we could call them safe zones for a period of time. What's the end result of refugee camps? Is it to resettle them back into their own country? Because there's been arguments made by those who are against immigration to say, well, these people don't want to come here. They would prefer to be resettled back into their own country. Is that the idea of a refugee camp? And is it the fact that a refugee camp just continues to be a refugee camp? So really, it's a dead-end street when people end up in there. Well, of course, what the situation that created the refugee camp varies from area to area. If you look at the Karin people, they had, uh, they had been evangelized and had had a lot of contact with the British before World War II. And when uh, World War II came, they backed the Allied side. Meanwhile, the Japanese and the Burmese, the ethnic Burmese, tended to kind of support the Japanese more as they came through. And so the Karen were seen as traitors, and they were too Western. 
And so they were driven at, at gunpoint and just trying to keep their lands. They've had a civil war going for, for decades. But many of them ended up, tens of thousands of them ended up in refugee camps in Thailand. Now the Thai also had refugee camps for Hmong and, and so forth. So they were there and just warehoused for a couple of generations. No school, not really learning how to work and so forth. But many did learn English and the, a goodly percentage are really solid Bible-believing Christians. Now, the Somalis, their country devolved into civil war in the early 90s, I believe it was, and as their country turned into chaos, clan against clan, this group against that group, there were hundreds of thousands of people who fled Somalia to get out of the crossfire, and most of them ended up in Kenya, although they certainly there's a diaspora through Egypt, there are Somalis all over the place. Okay, now the UN gets involved once somebody crosses a border. So a refugee is somebody who crosses a border. Now, if, if they just move to a different part of the country, then they're internally displaced people. And so you've got to be outside of your country for the UN to get involved. Then the UN comes in with its High Commissioner for Refugees, which means their whole program of tents and food and all the stuff that makes life work. But by the time it gets there, of course, it's many, many months. Then as things settle down, they uh, try to get figure out what to do with all these people. And option one that they try the hardest is to get them back to their country once things settle down. Option two is if they can work with the locals is to create a new city right there and try to create a city with, with its own infrastructure and its, its own trades and its own everything, you know, much like the, the situation with the uh, Palestinians. They have whole cities both in Jordan and in Palestinian held areas like Gaza and those cities were actually refugee camps, is what you're yes. saying. And they have developed more and more okay. into, into permanent cities. And it, But if that doesn't work, or if like the Thai, there's hostility, and they simply say, no, we're going to close this camp, we want all you people out of here, and they force it, well, then they end up going someplace. And the United States has been a leader, the leader, in taking refugees in. And so we take in, I think it's a maybe 50,000 a year. That's off the cuff, and I'm not sure about that number. But it's a fairly small number compared to our total immigration picture. Yeah, total immigration is well over a million uh, people coming in, and those are legal. We're not talking illegal, but legal immigration. So you're saying that it's the United Nations that actually sets the immigration or for refugees around the world, and they kind of figure out where everyone should go, and, and, and that's how they do it. Either they're going back to their own country, they're going to create a country from which the current refugee camp is situated, or they, they migrate to another country such as the United States or Western Europe. Did some checking here, and uh, typically we're under 100,000, someplace between 50 and 100,000 per year since uh, 1975. Peak year was 1980, but uh, the last many years it's been around, uh, looks like about 75,000 people. So anyway, uh, that's the UN refugees. And then they come in and they have some resources from that are given them by the government, but they have to repay their airline ticket in the first year and they have to get on their feet and they have to learn some language. They have to become acculturated. And they, uh, of course, those are great opportunities for ministry, for volunteers, for the church, ways to create relationships and bring faith. But these are still a small 
part of the total. In the Twin Cities, we have lots of refugees. We see a lot of those here because we have a lot of refugee resettlement programs here, and we have a safety net, and we have churches that care, and going way back to right after World War II, that was the case. So do you think the church today, in generally, are they aware of the resettlement programs? And if they are, what percentage of churches are probably involved with some kind of refugee resettlement ministry? I would not say that there's a huge amount. You know, churches uh, don't have enough volunteers to handle their own programs. I think there are some that are very aware and very involved in the actual refugee resettlement through, oh, through World Relief, or uh, which is Arrive Minnesota now, and Lutheran Social Services and some of the other groups. But the opportunities are great. Just as individuals, we can do that. But I would expect that maybe 10%, 15% have any active connection with any kind of ministry to refugees. And asylum seekers are another one that's another subset of that. But most of our immigrants are not of that group. There are certainly a large number of people who win the lottery, the immigration lottery every year, and a lot of those come to Minnesota. And there are a lot of immigrants that come here who are legal because they're here coming here on visas, and these are typically high-level professionals. And they are, you know, these are doctors and engineers and so forth, and uh, brilliant people, and I'd like to spend some time talking about that situation and how different that is because it's kind of got everything upside down. What I want to do is further the idea of do the churches know how, and if they don't know how, let's ask the big question, why should they even care about these refugees coming into our community? What would you say as a pastor is why should we care as churches or individual believers about these refugees? They're going to come in, they're going to get welfare, or they're going to get a job, but somebody's going to take care of them somewhere along the line. So why should the church be concerned about them. Can you imagine tomorrow something happens that your spouse dies, one of your children is killed or terribly, terribly injured, half of the people in your family are killed, you have no food, you have no ability to get food, you have no transportation, you have the clothes on your back, and you have to take whatever's left of your family, leave everything behind. You have to go in the middle of Minnesota winter and you need to find some way to travel 500,000 miles, let's say you need to get to Denver to be safe. Can you imagine how hard that would be? Can you imagine the emotional pain that would be? The people that come here as refugees have been through that kind of experience. Now, in 1847, my great-great-grandmother, apparently whose husband died, came with her two boys, including the younger one, my great-grandfather, and they somehow went to England and earned enough money to come across the uh, the Atlantic, and they landed in New York, went through upstate New York, and then southern Wisconsin. My great-grandfather ran off and fought the Civil War, came back, settled in Minnesota. Those stories are still alive, having just been in Ireland and seeing how the uh, people who were killed, uh, the depopulation that happened, the brutality of it, because the British were still exporting food from Ireland while these millions were starving, and some of the British said, well, fine, this is a way to get rid of those pesky Irish. It's unbelievable, the inhumanity of people against people. And there are times like this, and and interestingly, it's at times like this that so many things, important things, happen in the Bible. You have Joseph and Mary who are on the lamb and end up going first to Jerusalem and then they've got to take off because Herod's after them, go down to Egypt. You have the whole story of of Ruth uh, who ends up 
as a refugee and ends up marrying uh, the, the stranger who loves her, and she becomes the grandmother of King David. The wandering of the people of Israel for 40 years and how the, the people who were kind to them were blessed and the people who were rotten to them uh, were cursed. Throughout history, the, the many of the great things that happened, the great acts of God happened at times of upheaval. And uh, look at the story of uh, the prophets and uh, uh, Assyria and Babylon and the invasions and the people moving and the impact the Babylonian captivity had where they were all strangers in a strange land or Israel going down into Egypt and coming back out. That's all about refugees. That's all about traveling. And the people who helped them were never forgotten. You know, when we start talking about refugees, I can't help but think about as a former pastor, we used to really work hard at establishing a missions committee or a missions sort of emphasis. The problem for me always was that outside of an occasional visit by the missionary, maybe once every four to eight years, and some newsletters that keep us updated, we really never had hands-on experience with missionary practices or or ministry. But today we have an opportunity to really have a hands-on experience with being missionaries ourselves to those people who are here coming through either immigration or as refugees. So why wouldn't churches want to be more hands-on with their missions program? And if so, how would you recommend it? Well, first of all, if we talk about a program and one more thing the pastor has to organize and one more thing that's going to cost money, and one more thing that's going to, you know, poor pastor, you say, you know, we need Sunday school teachers. They can't even get Sunday school teachers. We, you know, women are working outside the home. We don't have that tremendous pool of free labor that once upon a time we had. And the church hasn't figured out how to run itself, how to cope. You've got the mega churches, but the mega churches, because people don't get involved, you know, that's not working either in, in a lot of cases. No, I agree. So what we have learned and what we think is that it's not a program it's taking individuals and training them together to create these little mini ministries where you see your life as ministry so that your outreach ministry is maybe to the person on the other side of the cube. It's somebody who works with you, somebody who lives next to you, somebody who you run into at Target or, uh, or run into uh, checking you out at, at Home Depot. These are all people to whom you can do ministry to just by opening up your heart, opening up your mouth. It doesn't cost millions of dollars. It just costs you the, the ability to just open your mouth and create a conversation, just to care. These are people who have amazing stories. They're not invited into, into Americans' homes. They are hungry for relationships. The Somali women are so hungry for relationships with American women so they can learn how do we cope. They're very, very curious. And this morning, we had a plumber at our house, and he began to speak to me in English, and I, I, I recognized he was a Spanish speaker, but listening to his English, to his accent in English, I said, Usted no es de, de México, de donde? I said, you're not from Mexico. Where are you from? He said, oh, I'm from I'm from from Ecuador. Mm. And I've taught in Ecuador and we had a nice conversation, did the whole rest of the time of the, I don't know all the plumbing words in Spanish, but, uh, but we had a great time and he was very friendly and very open. But I, I'm blessed that we had a great high school Spanish teacher. You know, that was a gift that I've been given, but just showing interest, building a relationship. That's what we need. 
One of the things that I think we need, as you're saying, is the encouragement to step out and do some of these things. And sometimes that Mm -hmm. encouragement comes by having some knowledge. If you're knowledgeable about how people, how they come here, how they interact, what are some of the needs they may have while they're here. And Mission Shift is one of those opportunities that every church can send representatives to and learn some of the knowledge that it takes to do just what you're asking people to do, which is to reach out. Tell us about it. Well, this will be the uh, 23rd class, the 23rd year of Mission Shift Institute, starting again this fall, the end of uh, September. And it's a one-year class teaching Christians to build and lead cross-cultural ministries. And it works. And it's just one night a week, not a whole lot of homework, and it teaches you to get out there and all the stuff you need to start building relationships, understanding people of another culture, finding ways to to share the gospel, helping them with simple needs, not something that's going to take you 40 hours a week, just an open heart, open eyes, open mouth. And it's been wonderfully successful, and we're very thankful for the. We have had over a thousand people go through the mm. the class here and a couple of other cities since we started it. And we'd like to welcome you to be a part of it. It's cheap. It's three hours every Monday night, and uh, it's it's a lot of fun. And how can they find out more information about how they can sign up? It's all on the web. Whoa! Go to missionshift.org. Mission Shift. Org. It's all on there. There's some videos we made. There's a couple of resource videos, introduction one and so forth, that explain what we do. They're from the Mission Shift video series. You can also, we've got a short version of six half-hour classes plus discussion questions. That's uh, available on Amazon. It's called the... Uh, Mission Shift video series, oddly enough, and that's available. But we're going to be talking about various things in this podcast. We're going to that looking at the situation. So, yeah, these are all ways that you can become aware. There's going to be more and more books out there, and uh, it's time. It's time. It's time. This is it the is critical time. time. And, it is. Uh, you know, it, whether even if you're at the busy time in life, well, we might call them the minivan years. Although I guess people are moving away from driving minivans. But when you got the pink screamers and you got to haul them to hockey and uh, to church and to musical lessons and all the rest of it. Hey, even at that time, you can still make a friend. Empty nesting years, that's great. Or right out of college when you've got some time. Great times when God can use you and it doesn't have to absorb, you know, 90 hours of your week. Before we go, there's a reason it's called Mission Shift. S-H-I-F-T. Mission Shift. Why is it called Mission Shift? Well, the global outreach of the Christian church used to always mean leaving the United States. But today, the whole world has come to us. And when the whole world has come to us, that gives us opportunities. We don't have to be professional missionaries. You and I are now frontline missionaries. Every church member is now a frontline missionary. And we want to take people in the pew, the religious consumers in the pew, and we want to turn them around and send them out every day as a frontline missionary, a fearless, joyful frontline missionary who feels confident in how they can go about bringing people to know Jesus Christ, helping them with their needs, becoming a friend. And that's, again, the, uh, for more information, one more time, the Mission Shift. MissionShift.org. Thanks for joining us today for this podcast. If you liked what you heard, please join us again next time. You can go to our website at MissionShift.org for more information. While you're online, you can sign up for the RSS feed that will deliver a link to your email inbox so you'll never miss an episode. That address again is MissionShift.org.